Cantillon in Buenos Aires from the Department of Surfaces. The text had indeed been marked with the stamp of the censor. It was a Spanish translation of a flight of fancy called the Consolidator, or Memoirs of Sundry Transactions from the World in the Moon, by the English fictionalist Daniel Defoe. The visitor knew the work, and although he hadn't been a personal friend of the man who called himself Defoe, he had met him several times in London and was impressed by Defoe's capacity to invent things that seemed real and transform real things into ones that seemed invented. Indeed, the ship which Defoe had sold him, or rather, he had bought from Defoe to help him out because he was a bit short, had transported him all the way to South America. Defoe had told the visitor that the Consolidator was the inspiration for the winged chariot which, in his fertile imagination, plied the oceans of space between the Earth and its satellite. My Consolidator was less effective than the one that occurred in my dreams. It leaked, it lost me money, and in the end, I left it in Essex, he'd said. The capacity to turn physical dissonance into mental harmony inspired the visitor, because he could see that Defoe's work as a merchant of things was inconsistent and unproductive, even leading him to periods of imprisonment for debt. But his books, which treated the impossible and the actual with the same reverence, earned significant, consistent revenues, as if they were solid as wool sacks. The coincidental appearance of his acquaintance's book in his hand in the smouldering heart of the cathedral at Buenos Aires had had a strange effect on the visitor. When he saw its spine and read the words written on it, he dropped the volume as if it was as hot as the lead dripping down from the roof. At that moment, the visitor stopped feeling so light inside. In fact, he felt heavy and old, as if the invisible hand of destiny that followed him around the surface of the earth with the persistence of a ship's rat or some seabird or other had descended through the hole in the roof and was now pressing down on his chest. He almost felt remorseful for trying to outwit it. It was as if he'd been a fool to believe that he could escape from the vengeful ghost of his future self the one none of us can outwit. As the visitor rushed out into the square, allowing the wooden door of the cathedral to slam shut behind him, he realised that the hand was probably already waiting for him. He accused it of sparking up the flames near the library so as to draw him there in the first place. The column of smoke he'd seen as he navigated his way towards land wasn't the miraculous sign he'd assumed. It was a finger beckoning him in, as if his time paddling on the lake was over. Buenos Aires was the very place the hand would have expected him to run to. It wasn't the end of the world, it was the beginning of the world. 
As he hurried home through the empty streets, the visitor felt trapped. How could a city of such interesting people play such a trick? He could no more become one of them than cease to be himself. After receiving instructions from Maria, whom he presumed had appointed herself his housemaid on account of the payments he had made her, the visitor set forth in the morning for the harbour master's office, a dilapidated stone and mud building crumbling in the shade of a fulsome tree, halfway between the castle walls and a subsiding wooden jetty. The morning was bright and fresh, and a stiff offshore breeze blew dry hot air at the hulks languishing off the coast. The harbour master looked at the newcomer from behind his desk. He sucked on the end of his pipe. His waxy cheeks sagged inwards, emphasising his high cheekbones, his round, dark eyes, his beak nose and blue-black hair. The pipe made a whistling sound, and in the bowl a tiny lump of tobacco hissed. "'Good day,' said the visitor, removing his hat and stooping slightly, so low was the ceiling. The office was cramped. Aside from a desk covered with charts and legal documents, the harbour-master and his chair and a collection of boat-hooks and oars he kept stacked behind the door— there was barely any room for the newcomer to stand in. The wall behind the harbour-master consisted of pigeonholes, each bearing the name of a ship and each containing scrolls of documentation. It seemed possible, thought the visitor, that the harbour-master, who reminded him of a jackdaw, might roost in one of the perches behind the desk. "'You'll have to register at the customs house,' said the harbour-master." And after that, there'll be oaths to make to confirm that you're not an enemy of the state. I'm not a privateer, Portuguese or English, said the man. Well, you would say that, wouldn't you? Said the harbour master, lugubriously taking a pen out of his drawer and dipping it in ink. I'm fleeing, said the visitor. I've been attacked by pirates and I'm seeking refuge for a few nights. I had hoped that I would be able to build a new life here, but... The harbour-master twisted his head and stared through the small window in the mud-brick wall of his office. He pinched the bridge of his nose between his thick thumb and his gnarled middle finger. <coughs> Contraband, he muttered. We don't acknowledge it on the letter, which I have already prepared for you. It says that I am satisfied that, notwithstanding the fact you turn up in Buenos Aires in an English wool ship, unannounced, with no bills of shipment, no documentation of any sort from any port anywhere in the world, nothing from Seville, Cadiz, or any of the other Spanish dominions, nothing from anywhere other than that famous smell you talk about, that of an Englishman. This letter states, I confirm that there is a void in the hole of that ship of yours, and that you want to purchase no goods from the hinterland. The harbour-master leant across his desk. His crooked yellow teeth seemed jumbled up with his beard. Which is bullshit, because you are trading like everybody else, although the King of Spain would prefer us not to, and to fry in the sun like beans on a plancher. It's a fucking stupid way to run an empire. The visitor dipped his hand into his breast pocket. He produced a small leather wallet and handed it to the harbour-master. Daylight robbery, 
he said. Send your pilot out to the consolidator. Ask her to check the hold. It's as empty as the harbourmaster's black eyes gleamed, as if he really was a crow registering something silver in the undergrowth. He turned his back on the visitor and gestured to the racks of rolled parchments behind him. These are the particulars of every ship to have visited Buenos Aires in the last three years, he said. I keep a careful log, but it's not the official one. When you visit the customs office in the castle, when you move on to the tax office, the political offices, all the other offices in the state, you will notice that they have significantly fewer scrolls and considerably more uniforms. The only histories in that castle are of things that were supposed to have happened. News from Lima, tax collections from Seville, flotillas from Cadiz and instructions from the Spanish Parliament. It's a fairy land of explicable, logical, accountable, controllable, meaningful success. In here, we're more concerned with what is actually occurring than what's supposed to be going on. You know what I mean? asked the harbour master with a flicker of a smile. I'm not um I'm not a privateer, said the visitor. I'm very glad to hear it, said the harbour master, accepting the money and showing the visitor to the door. Along in the way, I wish you'd said that you were. What did you say your name was? The harbour master's black eyes gleamed as if he really was a crow registering something silver in the undergrowth. Uh, um, Richard, said the visitor, avoiding the eyes. Cantillon, he added, sadly, lowering his own, as if ashamed. His intention had been to have left that version of himself behind, but now, after his encounter with the hand at the cathedral... All the aliases he'd created for himself, ones that he'd borrowed from his associate, Defoe, seemed ridiculous and trivial. He shifted his weight from foot to foot, irritated by his inability to stick to resolutions, as alter egos stolen from Defoe, Andrew Morton, Jeremiah Dryboots, Timothy Triffle, Anglipolsky of Lithuania and a pack of others seemed to stuff their belongings into pillowcases and set forth from the top of his head. Now, if you want to stay in safety here, said the harbour master as he scratched the name, you will take this letter to the customs office and then visit all the other instruments of government within the castle. Assuming you can answer their questions in a remotely satisfactory way, You'll be free to continue your business here in Buenos Aires before sundown. My advice to you is not to contradict. They must win the argument. Justification and bureaucracy must go hand in glove. Once again, the visitor found himself hurrying towards the thick walls of the castle. On his seaward side, he found the main gates open and after a brief conversation with a couple of guards on the drawbridge, he made his way through the departments. When the commander heard that a relative of the Lion of Cremona was being processed by the bureaucracy somewhere below his lofty tower, the visitor was immediately invited to dinner as an honoured guest. He's like you, 
said Maria, aimlessly stirring a pot of water dangling over the fire. The pilot raised her eyes from her book, pulling the candle stand a little closer, so that it spilled more light on her page. "'You mean he can read?' she said. "'Well, yeah,' said Maria. "'He's got a book, too.' The pilot looked at her mother. She felt annoyed with herself for wanting to laugh at her. "'They're not all the same, you know,' she said. "'The chances are that his book is different to mine.' "'They were supposed to teach you how to sew at school,' said Maria. "'They did,' said the pilot. "'The nuns taught me how to sew. "'Sailors showed me how to read. "'I know which I prefer.' "'Maria cast a sideways look at her daughter. "'She cursed her under her breath. "'On the third day, the visitor rose early "'and set about exploring the city. "'He'd enjoyed his evening with the commander "'and had listened with genuine interest "'to his stories about the region. "'As the evening had worn on, He'd begun to doubt some of the finer points of his plan. Fleeing from London, his family, even his fortune, seemed, even now, justifiable ideas. But following in the steps of Defoe, creating a new version of himself, devoid of the previous one's vices and peccadilloes, well, perhaps he was right to have felt oppressed by the impossibility of not being Richard Cantillon the greatest financier and most successful entrepreneur on the planet. It seemed a shame to kill off such a gentleman, leaving him six foot under in St. Pancras. One comment from the commander echoed in his head as he passed through the streets of Buenos Aires. This is a new world. Argentina sits on a river of silver and there are no limits to the potential within. He recalled the Argentinian wine. The beef, the fish, the delicate tasting puddings. Why didn't you tell your wife what you were doing? The visitor checked himself. He was standing outside a shoemaker's shop. Two young men, presumably brothers, were setting out their tools and workbenches within. Sorry, sorry, did I, did I disturb you? Said the priest, hurrying away from the sea towards the cathedral. Cantillon followed him. How's the um, structure developing? he asked. I have a team of 30 workmen on the job, said the priest. The roof will be patched before you can say, because it had to be a secret. I was being pursued through the courts by persistent, belligerent creditors who were trying to prove that my advice to them to invest in the Mississippi Company was improperly given. Cantillon spoke with enthusiasm. His words seemed to pour from his mouth. He didn't care that the priest was nodding as he spoke, smiling and encouraging him in the way that all priests do when one of their parishioners strikes a raw nerve. They argued that I didn't seek to advance them. Instead, I defrauded them. You'll be familiar with the phrase caveat emptor, won't you, Father? They turned a corner and continued walking up towards the square. A lot of people were jealous about my ability to judge when to invest in a project and when to pull out. In England, because they see me as Catholic, a Jacobite, an advisor to the French court, and perhaps, worst of all, an Irishman, the judiciary is always going to be prejudiced against me. Those squinty old rascals in the inns of court know who puts dripping on their bread. They know that in England there is no difference between the court of public opinion and the House of Lords. 
It was only a matter of time before some charge would be trumped up, some racket would be made to stick, and my fortune would have been sequestrated. I'd have been in the clink before you could say they had arrived at the plaza. The scorched entrance to the cathedral loomed before them. Behold, said the priest, gesturing towards the rising scaffolding surrounding the charred northwest corner. It is indeed a formidable, if wonky, cathedral, said the visitor. Thank you, said the priest. It holds two thousand. He could see the dean and several other members of the clerical community in deep discussion with the head constructor near the side door on the northwest corner. Look, I've got to go. They have a tendency to ruin things, said the priest. Sadly, our bishop has no eye for architecture. Cantillon watched the young man go. Sorry to hear that, he said, as if speaking to a gap in the air where once the priest had stood. Then he slipped across the square and down a lane. It wasn't difficult to navigate the streets of Buenos Aires. They had been set out by naval professionals and the roads all ran to the four points of the compass. The city was a perfectly proportioned checkerboard, comprising blocks of modest and welcoming proportions. It reminded the visitor of nowhere in particular, except perhaps Cadiz, a place which he had fond memories of. He paused outside a tavern, the sign above the doorway, intrigued him. El Cisne d'Oro, Propriedad, Capitano, Bernardo O'Higgins. The blood began to pump through Cantillon's body. He was beginning to feel like his old self again. Aires was recorded by the Department of Services. The music was from Duremer Puede Matera.